morning, College Park. Scripture reading for this morning is Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, and Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you that you give us grace and you love us in spite of all of what you know about us. Thank you that you like us even though you are not like us. And today I pray you'd use your word to unpack that truth so that we could be your people, follow you, and Lord, have a better understanding of how to live um, in a world in which it feels like more and more uh, we're becoming exiles. So help us. Help us to hear from you. Help us to respond in obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, our family has made uh, many long road trips. I'm sure you've done some of those yourself. You know, you're in the car for hours. And, and frankly, and maybe a little bit transparently, I'm, I'm really grateful for whoever invented the in-car DVD player. I mean, that, that's a genius invention and it's really helped. I mean, it's just a, it's great. Or as well, you know, all my, most of my kids, our three boys at least have their own iPods. So they have their iPods and their earbuds. And so it makes those long road trips a little more enjoyable. Okay. So maybe you're one of those families that you're like, no, we just talk the whole time. Oh, okay. Have at it, okay? The the world needs more people like you to balance out folks like us. But the reality is that um, those long road trips are made better by those those equipment, at least from my perspective. So we were traveling... Excuse me, um, a number of months ago. And, uh, you know, no matter what the age are of your kids, eventually if the road trip goes long enough, someone's going to ask the ultimate question from the back, which is what? Are we there yet? Or when are we going to get there? And one of our older kids asked that. Typically it's Savannah who asks it. But one of our older kids kind of jokingly asked it. And Savannah piped up and she said, We'll get there when we get there. <laughs> I love that. Little did I know that actually it's a line from Incredibles, apparently. I didn't realize that. But um, 
We'll get there when we get there. Well, when it comes to Exodus 19, guess what? We're there. We're halfway through the book, but yet we've arrived at a spot in the book, in terms of the location of Israel, that we won't go any further. Israel is done traveling. Now, granted, eventually they're going to move into the promised land, and they'll be in a long wilderness journey, and books like Numbers and Deuteronomy will record the rest of the story of Israel's journey. But for our purposes in Exodus 19, Israel is going to stay and stop, and now it's time for them to learn. There are things about God that Israel is going to learn, about his law, about the tabernacle, and everything that follows in the book of Exodus at this point is all about that learning experience. The division of the book looks like this. From this point forward, we'll see the God who commands. That'll take us through Exodus 24. And then we'll look at the God who is holy in chapters 25 to 33. And then the God who is near. And I don't want to spoil the book for you, but how it ends essentially, is that after God gives all of this instruction about who he is, the building of the tabernacle, and after Israel does it, then this great and glorious deliverer God comes and he dwells in the midst of that tabernacle. That this God comes near. He he comes in the midst and lives among his people. But before that event comes, where God comes near, there's something that Israel needs to get firmly fixed in her mind and heart. And that is the matter of God's transcendence. That God is distant. That He is holy and they are not. That He is righteous and they are unclean. That He, at the end of the day, is God. He's Creator. He's high up on the mountain. And when they get that right, then they'll hear His law and then God will come near. So the single thing that Israel needs to learn at this point as they come to the base of the Mount, of Mount Sinai and before they hear all of the Ten Commandments is this, that God is not like us. That's the main point of today's sermon. It is this, that God is not like us. Now don't get me wrong, clearly this text tells us that God likes you, but He is not like you. There's a world of difference. And this fundamental lesson of the holiness of God, the transcendence of God, the fact that he's not like them, will become the basis upon which God will then share the Ten Commandments. And then, for that matter, the whole law. And then we'll eventually come and dwell near them. So, today I want to just unpack this idea of God not being like us by first looking at how the text shows us who God is, secondly, who we are or who you are, and then third, what is required. So who God is, who we are, and what is required. So let's look first here at this idea of who God is. Until this time, Israel had known God from a bit of a distant perspective. He'd been the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. We'd seen him... Um, in, in the miracles of, of delivering the people out of Egypt, we've seen him provide in terms of manna. So, so God has done all of these things, but we come now to Exodus 19 where God reveals who he is. He begins to help Israel understand what he's actually like. In verses 1 to 3, we learn that it's now three months since Israel has left Egypt And verse 2, it says, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. 
there Israel encamped before the mountain. So get this, they're, they're coming up to Mount Sinai, and at the base of the mountain, they're making their camp, and they're going to wait and receive instruction from the Lord. Verse 3, this is an important statement. It says, while Moses went up to God. So this idea of Moses going up to God is really important because frequently in the Bible, um, God is described as a, in a high and a lofty position. Even Jerusalem itself is in an elevated uh, plateau of sorts, such that when people went to worship, they would they would sing in in the Psalter songs of ascent. So they're constantly going up to meet with the Lord. And so the idea that's presented here is God is on a mountain and His people are down below. While Moses is on the mountain, God spoke to him. And what God says in verses 3 to 6 are really important. Look at what he says. Verse 3, The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. Here it is. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God first reminds them about the Exodus. And it's not as though they would have forgotten the Exodus. It's not as though they're sitting there going, oh yeah, the Exodus. I mean, everything about their life and their relationship with God is predicated on the Exodus event. He, why does God tell them this? Well, he wants them to understand that he is their deliverer and that what's going to happen next as far as the command that he's going to give them, they they flow out of his gracious deliverance. He says, I brought you to myself. So this becomes the defining moment for Israel and her relationship with God. This Exodus moment is where God, as their deliverer, decisively brings them to himself. And for that matter, he brings them in an unqualified way, meaning that there's nothing about them that warranted God's deliverance. So for the rest of their lives, they would always know that it was God who rescued us, and he had no reason to do so other than his graciousness. So God helps them to know that, reminds them that everything that's going to follow is based upon his deliverance. Secondly, he invites the people into a covenantal relationship with them. Look at verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So he invites them into a covenant in light of all of what God is, he invites them to, to, to be a part of sort of his community or in a relationship with himself. Israel would be required to obey God. They would be given the law. They would be given the understanding of how God wanted them to live. And this was the reason why God had redeemed them. He, hadn't, he didn't just redeem them out of slavery just to free them. He redeemed them out of slavery in order to transform them. God wanted them to be his people and then radically transform their lives. So his end game was not just deliverance from bondage. His end game was to help them find a better way to live. So that's what God was doing. Third, he marked the people of Israel off as his treasured possession. He says, if you'll keep my uh, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You look ahead to verse 6, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the idea was that God had chosen, He had elected the people of Israel. They were His people. And as a result, He was fulfilling what He had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 when He said that all the people of the earth would be blessed through you. So God had chosen the people of Israel and they were to bless the world. And 
That blessing would come by inviting the nations to worship Yahweh at Jerusalem. That blessing would come primarily in the New Testament through the the giving of Christ. God was keeping His promises. Even though there was nothing innately special about the people of Israel, God had set His love on them in order to bless the world. And I think God has still set His love on the people of Israel. I think there's going to come a day when, as Paul said, all Israel will be saved. I don't think that God's promise or His love of treasured people of Israel has um, been fundamentally altered. There's coming a day when God's treasured people will turn back to Him. So He marked them as His treasured people. And here's the fourth thing, and this is, this is the most important part of what God says here. Be my treasured possession from among all peoples. Then he says this, for all the earth is mine. That's a really important statement. In fact, that becomes a presuppositional understanding that will inform your understanding of the Ten Commandments and informs, from my perspective, your entire understanding of the rest of the Bible. What God is establishing here is that in the midst of a culture that claims that there's lots of gods, he's saying he's not one God among other gods. He's saying he is the only God. That in effect, he owns it all. All the earth is mine. That he is the creator. He's the sovereign, the supreme. He's saying that everything belongs to him. And I'm not sure if I can overemphasize to you the importance of this point. God being sovereign and supreme, being the owner, the creator of all things, has sweeping implications, particularly in regards to ethics. Let me give you an example. In a little bit in Exodus 20, and primarily next week, we're going to see that God lays out some very specific commands. And so let's just take one. God says, no adultery. So what gives God the right to decide that adultery is wrong? How did God, why does it make, how does God decide that this is right and this is wrong? And the answer to that is, He's God. He's the Creator. He owns everything. He owns the world. He owns the earth. He owns you. He owns the planets. He owns everything about that exists in the world. He is the Creator God. And therefore, if God is Creator, then He has the ability to establish one thing is right and the other is wrong without any question. Another example. How can God be trusted that his way is the best way? I mean, what if you're like, look, I, you know, so God says this is wrong, but yeah, that's kind of old school. And, you know, in this new modern era, we've figured out that these sort of old ethics don't really apply anymore. It's really not that big of a deal. And the reality is in our new enlightened age, these moral issues aren't really issues anymore. How can God really be trusted that his way is the best way? Well, the answer is, is that God is the creator. He designed the earth and everything and, and, the, and the systems that are involved in the earth. He designed human beings And the reality is that as creator and as supreme, God has the right not only to define what is right and wrong, but also he designs the very best path in life. Another sweeping implication that if you choose not to follow his law, will there be consequences? If if all the earth belongs to God, if he's supreme and the creator, then there's accountability. That means that one day you're going to have to stand before him and a violation of his law, a violation of his rule will mean that you'll have to give an account to the Creator God. And then here's another one. If God acts in a way that doesn't seem fair or is not understandable to you, what will you do? See, if God is, a, is, 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 control, is the controller of everything, if He's supreme, and if He owns everything, if everything belongs to Him, then that changes how you see words like fair 
or if it makes sense to you. So if you go through life and your end game is life has to be fair, I have to understand it, it has to make sense to me, I've got to be able to sort through all these things, you're in for a really hard life. Because the reality is there will always be gaps between the reality in which you live and your ability to understand what's really going on. And that gap is only addressed by the sovereignty and supremacy of God. At the end of the day, you may not know why and you may not know what, but the Bible tells us you can know who. So this changes everything. God is sovereign, meaning he owns everything. And when he lays out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it will be based on the fact that he is God. He is the creator. He owns it all. And this is the lesson, church, that Israel needs to learn at the base of the mountain. This is the lesson, perhaps, that we need to be reminded about. That ethics and morality are not determined by vote. They're not determined by popular opinion or polls. Ethics and morality aren't determined by cultural norms. That they're determined by the Creator, who is not like us. He likes us, but He is not like us. This is where a relationship with God begins. From a correct understanding of who He is... And understanding that He is the owner, supreme over all things. And then then we're able to understand the Ten Commandments. Then we're able to understand His law. He's holy, He's separate, He's distant, He's transcendent. He is not like us. And that's where we have to start. So who God is? Here's the second thing. So who are you? The text goes on and it explains the contrast between God and His transcendence and us. So who is God, then who are we? And what happens is Exodus 19 identifies that God is remarkably different than His people. In fact, He is dangerously different than His people. So Moses goes up, reports, goes down rather, um, hears the people's reaction, goes up to the Lord. He's kind of serving in this intermediary role, which will become a prefigure for Christ's mediatory role, but is also designed to show the people that you just can't march up into the presence of the Lord. It'll be dangerous for you. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. So they were to to be preparing for this third day. On the third day the Lord will come down and Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. So they were to make special preparation and the primary concern in that preparation was attention towards cleanliness. And, And... God will unpack this concept of cleanliness even further through the rest of the law. The book of Leviticus in particular has crazy laws about molds and dead bodies and things of that sort, and when you're clean and when you're unclean. And you might read that and go, what in the world is this about? What it's about is essentially that people would understand that God is holy and they're not, that he's different than them. And that human beings fundamentally are not naturally acceptable to God. We don't enter the world acceptable to Him. And if all those people just marched up into God's presence, they would all be destroyed because they weren't acceptable to Him because of their natural born state. So there are specific instructions that are given, even regarding setting a boundary around Mount Sinai. The the dwelling place of God was not to be touched. Look at verse 12. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. He shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So the idea is put boundary markers around the mountain because the reality is you in your condition and God in his glory are not compatible. In fact, this idea of God's separateness and his uniqueness will even be embedded in the instructions regarding the tabernacle. I mean, we'll, we'll see this later on in the, the summer, that God's going to give very specific instructions, and one of those instructions are that there's to be a general courtyard that the people could go into, but then there was this holy place that only the priests could go, and then there was only this holy of holies that just the high priest could go, and in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, and that Ark of the Covenant wasn't to be seen by all of the people, that there were layers of privacy and layers of distance connected with God and His glory. And why, why is all of that there? Same thing is repeated in the, in the temple construction. All of that is there in order for the Old Testament people to learn one very basic lesson. And what lesson is that? The lesson essentially is this. God is not like you. And if you come into His presence and just come into that Holy of Holies, that would be deadly. Eventually we'll see that the law would be given. And everything about the law was meant to communicate that The way you are, as you are, is not right. The third day, verse 16, God comes. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Can you imagine this? There's this mountain and it's smoking and there's fire and there's thunder and lightning. I mean... I mean, you're, we're in our houses when storms come through. This is the time of year for that. It's you know, sometimes kind of scary, but it's nothing like when you're camping and you've got like a two-millimeter piece of canvas between you and certain death. I mean, that's loud, right? When, that, when you're hearing thunder like that, it's like, wow, this is loud stuff. So the, 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 the mountain is shaking and quaking. There's a smoke cloud over it. There's peals of thunder. And, it's, and Moses is like, hey, come on out to the mountain. I mean, people are like freaking out. Where are you taking us? Come meet God, you know? And they're going to come to the base of the mountain. And why, why is all of this here like this? Why did God set all this up? Because he wants them to learn a very basic lesson. And the lesson is while God loves his people and why he likes them, he is not like them. And if they're not careful, he could be dangerous because they are so different than him. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln because the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up. The Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So notice all these warnings. You've got the smoke, the thunder. The, don't come near the, the mountain boundaries. Even God's warning. Why is all of this here? It is so that God would lovingly help His people to know. And please understand, it's loving for God to tell us. He wanted them to lovingly know that God is holy and they are not. They have to understand the difference between them and God, otherwise they will never understand anything about the law. They won't understand anything about grace and redemption. They have to understand what the problem is. In the New Testament, Jesus will ultimately solve the problem between God's holiness and mankind's sinfulness. But as you look in the Old Testament, the lesson is clear. God is not like us. 
Now, if you've not read the Bible before, you see these kind of images of God, you might be almost seem a bit offensive. Why does God make such a big deal about his distance? Well, it's actually not a not um, improper for him to do so if he's really like that. In fact, it's frankly, it's kind and gracious for God to to warn us and to tell us what he is like if he is holy and we're not. And and with the loud warnings, God 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 wants to sear something in the in the minds and hearts of his people. He wants them to never forget what he's really like. And so he, in a big and loud way, helps to set the context. It w- wouldn't be that dissimilar to, I mean, when our, what you would do as a parent, when our, when our kids were little, they, you know, they, like our, our, all of the kids had fascinations with light sockets and putting things in them, you know, those little slits just beg for stuff to go in there. And I remember our kids, you know, taking a, a screwdriver and they're like, yeah, what does this do, daddy? And, you know, you jump up off the couch, no, tackle them, take out the screwdriver out of your hands. And the kids are like, whoa, daddy hurt me, you know, he was loud. And the reality is you, you, you need to be loud and fast and quick and hard in that scenario, lest somebody gets hurt. You don't just kind of tiptoe over there and, oh, sweetie, no, 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 no. You need to hit it right hard, right? You need to get that because there's danger. And that's appropriate because of the danger of the moment. In the same way, the loud warning from God is not only appropriate, it's actually loving and kind. I mean, it would be I mean, terrible for a parent just to watch their kid go over and, oh, let's watch what happens here, right? That would be terrible. You'd be a terrible parent. Instead, what you're supposed to do is quickly and decisively move. And that's what God has done. It's a kind thing that God has told us that we are dead in our trespasses. You know why? Because we feel very much alive, that's why. And you could walk through life thinking, you know what, everything is okay. Look at me, I'm alive, I'm happy, it's sunny out, it's May, woo, life is good. And the Bible says, you're in trouble. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. It is kind for God to tell us that. It is kind for Him to tell us in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And you know why the Bible has to tell us that? Because we would be inclined to think that we are righteous. Especially when we compare ourselves to other people, which we are unbelievably good at doing. I'm more righteous than that guy. I'm a lot more godly than that guy. Dude, I'm nailing it compared to him. And pretty soon we start measuring ourselves up and the Bible says, hello, there is no one righteous. The Bible says that there is no one who does good, that we have all sinned, that the wages of sin is death. See, the problem with the human heart, listen to me, the problem with the human heart is that the natural inclination of our soul is to think that we're the exception to the rule that applies to everybody else. Sure hope there's a police officer for all those people. We begin to think that we aren't really that bad. And as a result, we begin to think that God can be treated casually. This is why this image of God in Exodus 19 is so important. Because it helps us to see that human beings were made to worship and due to our fallen condition, we would make ourselves little gods. And so God has to help Israel see what he is really like. And the implication of this moment is, oh, that's God. Clearly that's not me. So the point of this scene at the Mount at the base of Mount Sinai, is simple. And the point is this. Someone greater than you is here. Look, much of the problems with um, morality and ethics that have gone way off the deep end, when you bottom line it, the real issue underneath a wayward moral code 
is because people don't believe that someone greater than themselves exists. They make themselves the ultimate reference point. Someone who created the world loves you. Someone who created the world likes you. But he is not like you. Third, so what is required then? So all of this is to set the stage of what comes next. So building upon this lofty image of God, the scary image of His holiness at the mountain with smoke and lightning and peals of thunder, we then roll into Exodus 20. Exodus 19 is there right before Exodus 20 on purpose. It's to set the scene that God is now going to give the commands that serve as the very foundation of the law and for that matter the fabric upon which human society is based. And he's going to give those commands after helping Israel see what he is like. Look at verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord who, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He then proceeds from there to give them the Ten Commandments. So out of the graciousness of God's deliverance combined with the unbelievable reality of his holiness, he then says, The Ten Words, or gives them the Ten Commandments. So these Ten Commandments are a summary of all of the law. You could take all of the law and wrap it up into these Ten Words. They represent, um, think of it like a a natural moral code, a a law that's to govern the universe. Think of it like, like gravity is to our world. And they can be organized into four basic sets. The first three commands are God's exclusive claims for himself. No other gods, no idols, no misuse of the name. Commandments four and five are God's basic institutions, that of Sabbath rest and that of the family. And then uh, commandments six to seven are God's human obligations, no murder, no adultery. And then finally, social obligations, commands eight through ten, which are no lying, I forgot to add, no stealing and no coveting. And so these form the basic fabric of how God wants the world to operate. And these commands are rooted in the character of who God is. And therefore, church, these commands are perpetually binding moral commands. These aren't just commands that relate to Old Testament saints or Old Testament literature. These commands... I can actually show you, are rooted in the garden, in the creation ordinances, and are carried and fulfilled in the commands of Christ. These, these represent the fundamental reality upon which God wants life to be based. So, these laws become, these commands become the fabric for culture. Now, that's really important for you to understand, because from my perspective it feels like we have lost in our culture and even a little bit in evangelical christianity an understanding of the importance of god in his transcendence and his ability to define right and wrong as our moral code what do i mean by that i mean that in our postmodern culture there is this belief and it's becoming not only part of our culture, but it's even creeping at times into the church that there is this understanding or belief that there is no real and absolute standard for truth outside of ourselves. So for there to be truth outside of me is something that is just 
not widely accepted today. In other words, that there's a standard that's out there, but many people today think it's what they think or what they feel or what they want to do. So they become the infinite reference point. So it's not just what the Bible... So the Bible says one thing, but now i gotta, I got to agree with the Bible. I have to, to validate it. And then it becomes true. That, that true is what true is to me. For instance... The effect of this is just so sweeping. Think of how culturally normal it is to take the Lord's name in vain or to covet. I mean, it's just, does anyone even care about those issues anymore? Or how typical it is, just think of this, how typical it is, how much we assume that the legal system, the government, or the person trying to sell you something, that they're going to lie. And when you add that into the equation, it just creates a mess across the board. The whole reason that there's all sorts of hearings going on right now in Washington is because of the fact that someone's trying to figure out who's lying and who's telling the truth. You put lying into the mix of courts, governments, societies, family, it messes everything up. Why? Because that's how God has designed life to be. It is an aberrant behavior of what God wants or the way that he wants his people to live. Take sexual ethics. You know, it's weird, it's viewed as weird now and silly for a person to remain sexually chaste or for sex to be reserved only for two people in a covenantal marriage. You may have a person who's single for many years and trying to maintain their purity, their virginity. I mean, that's viewed as like put them in a zoo and look at them. I mean, it's like, what is up with you? It's just so, something wrong with you? Don't you know most people don't live this way? You put that person then in a college dorm environment or a fraternity or just hanging out with friends, and it's their, they just look at them like they're, they're crazy. Covenantal marriage, I now even have to define what I mean by that. We now have the redefinition of marriage culturally such that I have to say what I mean by covenantal marriage. I mean a man and a woman. That's what I mean. It used to be that the main categories in our culture were male and female. And that was really all you had to really worry about. Now it's male, female, gay, straight. In fact, I was reading recently an advocate for so-called same-sex marriage, and the person was saying this, that as a society we are conditioned to believe that our categories of sexuality and gender are rigid and absolute. It says we're conditioned to believe that. But we forget how constructed and even arbitrary those categories can be. What the person is saying is, you may think it's all rigid and narrow, but the reality is you just, it's just all about you and what you're choosing and what you choose to believe. That's a, that's a post-modern mindset. And you know what has now become the defining ethic? The defining ethic has been love. If two people love each other, then what does it matter if they're, they're, they're married and have spouses? What does that matter? I mean, they, they love each other. They, they're soulmates. They gotta be together. What does it matter if they love each other, if it's a man and a man or a woman and a woman? Doesn't, if they love each other, that's the point. And for that matter, acceptance, that's the real issue. You need to accept people and not be judgmental. You can't, you can't be so rigid and defined because you start saying this is right and this is wrong. You're imposing your beliefs on somebody. That's not right. That's not Christian. That's the culture that we are living in. And in many respects, I don't know about you, but I feel like an exile in my own world. So what, what do we do with this? Well, the reality is, is that part of the challenge is that it's not just a matter of 
understanding what the Bible says, it really is a matter of who, who is God. And you may know someone or you may be somebody who's struggling with some of those things. You have, you have feelings and you may either know they're not right or you may have them and wonder if they are in fact right. And as compassionately and as lovingly as I can tell you that this, when you step outside of God's prescribed boundaries, it's a no man's land. It's an ethical no man's land. Our feelings and our emotions and our desires, they, they, don't, they are not good boundary markers for life. We don't get to define ethics and morality. God defines that for us. And you might say, well, well, why does he get to do that? And my answer would be because he's God. That's why. And we don't get to do that because we're not God. And our attempts to redefine morality in any category, in any category, we define, define morality in any category outside of the boundaries of what God has prescribed, we end up saying to God, I don't care what you're like. I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to set my own rules. And I don't care if you're up on that mountain or not. I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be my own God. And as you'll see in the case of Israel, that always turns out badly. Oh, it's fun for a moment. There's this golden calf thing that we'll see in a few weeks. It's great for a moment. People are having a riot until God shows up. And then it was like, "Uh uh-oh. Listen, this isn't just an issue about the redefinition of marriage. It's not just about same-sex attraction. This relates to everything outside of the boundaries of God's design. This relates to... Those of you who are unmarried and you're fighting the battle for your own purity and there are times in the back of your mind you're thinking, you know what, is this really worth it? Do I really need to maintain these boundaries? Is this really a prize? You're in the middle of a marriage, you've been together for many, many years and you're fighting for fidelity even though you've learned that you're not perfect people. Somebody maybe looking at dating somebody and you know they're not a believer, but you think, you know what, I can lead, I can lead them to Christ. I can, I can win them to Christ. But the reality is your affection and your desires are trumping what you know is right. And at the end of the day, we've got to come back, church, to this thought of, look, this is the way God has defined life. And it's not a burden. It's actually kind for Him to do so. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he can say that because of who he is. God makes these commands not just because it's right, but also because everything else outside of his moral code is bad. Listen to me. Your desires, as real as they seem, if they're outside of God's design, will lead to disaster. And that's the lesson that Israel needed to learn. It's the lesson that we need to learn. So, finally then, what's the hope in the midst of all of this? You know what the hope is? The hope is this. That God gave the law for a very specific reason. He defined this moral code for a very intentional purpose, and that is this. Paul, the apostle, said that God designed the law in order to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law highlights the beauty of God's holiness in order to help us to see our complete inability to keep it. If you understand the law and understand the beauty of who God is, as, as Israel comes to the base of that mountain, they make the correct conclusion. Moses, don't speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. You speak to us lest we die. They got the message. God is that unlike them. But the beautiful thing is that the Bible tells us that Jesus comes in order to solve the problem between God's holiness and our sinfulness. He, he comes to restore the brokenness of our souls. 
He comes to take the guilt that comes when you've given your soul away. And to say, why would you give your soul away? It just, it doesn't work. Instead, he comes to make someone whole from the inside out. And that happens when someone realizes, you know what? I I don't run my life very well. I need someone else to take over. And they acknowledge the indwelling presence of sin. And Christ comes and becomes their Savior and Lord. It means that broken people and those who struggle, which all of us do, under the weight of our constant wrestling with sin can come to Christ and find forgiveness and freedom. You don't find perfection, but it means that He's suddenly made you whole. God takes away your guilt in Christ. He completely forgives you. He welcomes you into, your fam- into His family and He considers you as though you've completely obeyed the law. But then He does something else. He puts the very Spirit of Christ, He puts His own Spirit within you such that when you read the commandments, when you read the Ten Commandments, or when you hear a statement like, God is not like you, or when you hear God sets the rules, when His Spirit is in you, it no longer makes you mad, it makes you glad. You say, yes, that's great that He does that. Because I can't run my own life. Thank God that you define the rules. And thank God that you put the Spirit within me. And thank God that you're not like me. Because I know me, and me is not good. I don't define morality well. I don't make good decisions. I make a mess of my life. And at the end of the day, by the Spirit of the living Christ, you realize the beautiful hope for your life is you releasing control and saying, God, I'm not like you. Would you please come and take over this mess? The joy of God's deliverance is that you see God-defined boundaries in life and they make sense and you see that they're good and you know that they're good because at the end of the day, you've come to embrace the beautiful reality that God likes you, but He is not, thank God, like you. He is not like me. Thank you. And that, friends... It's the basis of the Old Testament law. It's the basis of the Ten Commandments. It is the basic reality through which you live life. That God likes you, but brothers and sisters, He is not like you. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for making a way for us to be right with You despite who we are and what we do. We are all fundamentally broken people. We have messed up royally in ways that we know, ways that you know, and ways most people don't. And so thank you that even though you see it all, you cover it with the blood of Christ for those who have put their faith in Him. And we thank you that you have place the Spirit of Christ within us that makes us love what we used to hate. So Lord, for what this text says, would you emblazon it on our hearts that the next time temptations come across our path that we would realize what we are being asked to do is treason against the Creator of the universe. Oh, help us to avoid trivializing, justifying, rationalizing, exceptionalizing our own sin. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters, I can imagine a few of them who are teetering or maybe even recently stepped across a line thinking, well, 
that law applies, but I'm, I'm not sure I, it's really for me. I pray that today, by the Spirit, they would feel the weight of that beautiful conviction and run back to you. For those who fight in the areas of moral and ethics, I pray that you'd help them to continue to fight that battle even though they feel like they're the only one. And finally, God, thank you that you are not like us. It's a great reminder, and it's so hopeful, and we need it because our hearts are prone to make ourselves mini-gods. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be some of our counselors and prayer team up here. If there's something that you need to pray about with someone today, they're here to serve you and help you in that respect, all right? Hope you can come to 6 o'clock tonight at uh, Fresh Encounter Prayer Time. I'd love to have you pray with us this evening, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.